Many times, uh, we will write down our plans, and we will journal precisely what we feel like is going on in our lives. Some of you may be journalists, or you may be journal-type people. In the book of Nehemiah, what you have is a, a, a someone who has written down just what's on their heart. And in writing this down, they capture an incredible moment with God. A moment that, to be quite honest with you, is a transformative moment in his own life. The book of Nehemiah is a book, uh, it's, a, it's a personal memoir of what God was doing in Nehemiah's life and how Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem after working for the, uh, the king of Persia He comes to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. God gives him a clear vision. God gives him a sanctified imagination in order to see what he would do through him. And yet, there comes a point that Nehemiah faces resistance. Resistance from people who don't want to see the work happen. The walls of Jerusalem, they are built out. I believe we have a picture of them. The walls, they are 40 feet high, 2.7 miles long, 9 feet thick. And at this point, when Nehemiah gets this word, the walls are rubble. The king, King Nebuchadnezzar, 140 years earlier, had torn down the walls. So for 140 years, generation after generation, people grow up seeing nothing but rubble, walls broken down. And to grow up in Jerusalem with broken down walls meant that at any point, any king could come in and capture the city. There was no protection. And so Nehemiah caught a vision from God that he said, in my generation, I want to build the walls back up. I don't want things to be the same way they were for my father or my father's father or my father's father's father. I want walls. And I don't want someone to grow up like I did. No walls around my city. No protection. And some of you, some of you have been given a vision. Some of you have been given great dreams. Some of you have been given great passions to do things where you will be the last generation that has to experience schools, that has to experience homes, that has to experience a city in a particular way. You want to be the last generation. And God has given you a clarified vision. He's given you a sanctified imagination so that you can know precisely what he has you to do. And we talked about last week that oftentimes you will have a vision, but God will put you in the waiting room. And you'll have to wait a little while before you see that vision come to pass. That for Nehemiah, there were several months. He, got a, he had a clear vision, but it was only several months before God would actually bring that vision to fruition. And so uh, I was with many of our people in city groups, and they talked about, that's exactly where I am. I have something I know God wants me to do, but I'm not seeing it come to pass. And we talked about worshiping God while you're waiting in the waiting room. But... Today, um, we are going to talk about resistance. 
Because if you are going to make a spiritual impact, you are going to face resistance. If you want to make a financial impact, that's great if you want to make a social impact or a political impact. But if you are going to make a spiritual impact, like Zechariah 4 and 6 saying that not by might, not by power, but not by might, not by uh, power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. If you want to use spiritual power to make an impact, you will have an enemy that will resist you. And you will have people to resist you. And there will be people who find it irresistible to, to resist you. They can't wait to resist you. What we have to realize is that we don't face opposition because we're doing something wrong. We face opposition because we're doing something right. When you're doing something great for God, when you're putting it all on the line, when you're investing all your time, all your energy, all your resources to do something great for God, you will find great resistance. And you will be in the midst of great trial. Now, we have an enemy, a spiritual enemy. The Bible says that he prowls around us like a lion, seeking who he can devour. And we know that this is a reality. And we know that there's a demonic world that we will face. And if you aren't at a place where you understand the spiritual battle, if you are at a place where you don't understand devils and demons, one thing you will face are people people who will want to resist you. So you may not believe in the devil, and you may not believe in demons, but you better believe in evil people who will come against the plans of God, and they will resist everything you try to do because they don't want to see an impact, particularly an impact from God. And that's what we're at in, uh, in Nehemiah chapter 4. We're in a moment in this book where Nehemiah has gathered together all the different families in order to put the walls back up. And in this moment, Nehemiah now has everyone building, all the families beginning to build, and yet they get their first taste of resistance. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 reads this way. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they were building, he would, he would break down their stone wall. Now, there's not a lot of deep context I need to give you. This is the lunchroom you grew up in. There are people on the side watching other people do things that are, and they're hating on them and talking about them. They're not like directly in front of them. They're on the side talking about the work that they're doing. And this is criticism they're facing. And Nehemiah will have to teach his people how to deal with criticism and how to push through it. Several things in the text to keep in mind of. One of the first things to understand is in Ezra chapter 4, we see that this is not the first time that Jerusalem, or rather the Israelites, have tried to rebuild the wall. 
They tried to rebuild the wall in, four, in 458 B.C. It's now 440. It's about 18 years later. And the people that were there to see the failure of the past are still there right now. And so they're like, look at them. And so that's why he says, will they ever finish it? Because I remember about 18 years ago when you didn't finish it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember your past. Yeah, yeah, I remember y'all, y'all little Israelites getting together. And he calls them pathetic. And that word there means feeble or weak or puny or small. There's about 40,000 of them. And normally with this kind of work, you would have architects and engineers and very skilled people to be able to build the work. These are just basic people just getting together, doing the work because they know it's right. So they're saying, look at the amount you have. Look at the lack of insight and skill. You are pathetic. You are weak. Look at this small gathering you have. And then he says in the middle there, what y'all going to do, offer sacrifices? He says, that's where you get your power, your mystical God? You're that flying spaghetti monster you pray to, is that where you get your power? Oh, you're going to pray about it. Oh, that's what you're going to do. I know you Christians. You're going to pray about it? You're going to offer up some sacrifices? That's, that's how you're going to get your power? And what this criticism was steeped in is, I know your past, and I, and, I, and I see your weakness, and I'm going to keep throwing that in your face because I'm trying to engineer doubt in your mind. One of the things that we as believers in general, we, we have to get comfortable with is navigating criticism. And you will have basically two types of criticism that we see here in Nehemiah. And mostly one type, but we're going to talk about two types. The, the first type is habitual criticism. And then there's healthy criticism. Habitual critics identify your weaknesses to make themselves feel more secure. Hab, uh, rather, um, yeah, habitual critics, they identify your weaknesses in order to make themselves feel more secure. Yeah. Sambalat, yeah, he was the big man on campus. He used to be able to walk in and out of their little town before anyone came around. He, the walls were down, and he could walk in and out whenever he wanted, but now they see them coming together, and they see the walls being restored again, and he's worried that he won't have that same power he used to have. So he's watching them, and he's concerned about them. And interestingly enough, critics, oftentimes critics, they, they, they are mad at you because you're taking something from them. Oh, when you sing and someone else hears that you sing, they're, they're mad that you're taking their sound or you're mad because they have plans and church planters do this too. <laughs> they see another church coming up and they see it cropping up and they start to talk bad about the work that they're doing over there. And it's only because they want to make themselves feel better. They want us to feel better about themselves. So they kind of identify your weaknesses to secure themselves. The other kind of criticism is healthy criticism. And, and healthy criticism is when someone identifies your weaknesses but then partners with you for the solution. <laughs> now, the reason why this is important is because somewhere in our minds, we see all types of criticism as bad. And yet, 
when you have a critic like this that's mocking you, we know to throw them aside. But because we've been mocked in the past, we may tend to think all criticism is bad. Habitual critics, we move them out the way. And we know they are in an identity crisis. And so we don't pay attention to them. We know that they're mocking him and they're doing all these types of things. But the reality is, is that many times we should be seeking feedback, seeking insight and seeking wisdom. I always get concerned when I give a critique to someone and they can't stand there for more than 10 minutes and receive feedback. Part of it is they've deemed all criticism bad. We need to be able to move aside the habitual critics, the ones that are trying to call us out and bring us down. But healthy criticism, healthy criticism needs to be a part of our palate, what we consume. Every Monday, I ask the pastors, what would you think about the sermon? Now, honestly, there could be a moment where I saw everybody levitate, and I saw angels come down, and I saw everything change, and, but I still ask, what'd you think? Not because I wonder what they think as much as I'm trying to train my heart to hear criticism. I'm trying to teach my ears to hear criticism, because when I hear criticisms, particularly from my wife, when I hear criticism, there's a part of me that just can't, I can't take it, and, and the reason why is because I've, I've experienced this kind of criticism in the past. I remember when we only had three people, and we had people coming up saying, this is all, this is all you got? You got you, you, you're a church plant. Is this what it is? I remember when we used to use a microphone, and I'm like, why do we have a microphone? This is really a small group Bible study, just with a lot of sound. And the reality is, is that I had to push through that season, and one of the ways that I pushed through that season was I was able to take healthy criticism and identify habitual critics. And there will be habitual critics. And so criticism is a part of leading out and, and pushing through resistance. But in Nehemiah 4.4 and 4.6, we learn how to respond. Hmm. Nehemiah 4.4. Nehemiah says, listen, our God, for we are are despised. And Nehemiah takes it to the Lord. He prays to his God. And he says, I'm being despised, God. They're talking about me. And they're talking about this work that we would do. They're bringing me down. And I presume that Nehemiah is saying this because he's being affected by it. It's starting to get in his psyche. So Nehemiah says, listen, our God, we are despised. But then in Nehemiah 4.6, it says this. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had the will to keep working. Lord, do you see what's happening here? Please speak into this situation. But the people kept working. One of the greatest ways that you can respond to criticism is not only identifying habitual critics from healthy criticism, but it is taking everything to God and then getting back to the work. Oh, man. Oof. I can't tell you how many dreams have died by the first taste of criticism. How many plans have failed the first time people got feedback? 
The first time someone didn't smile when you told them your plan. How people went home discouraged because they couldn't see what they dreamed come to fruition. Take it to God, but then get back to work. Keep working on the plan. Keep putting it through. Did God give it to you? Did God give you that dream? Then get back to work and use it as a form of worship. Get back to the work. And so this is what I want to encourage you to do, friends of people going through and things that you need to do in your own life. When you have a friend who's struggling, what I want you to do is, when they're going through, put your hand on their shoulder. And you say, Lord, we're despised. We're facing all types of criticism. We're feeling the weight of this world. And you put your hand on their, their shoulder and you just pray it. And, they, and then you guys start crying together and you snot bubbles and all that, God. And you're just feeling it. And you're just like, oh, God, we're just, they're talking about this work. And, we're not, and then you do all that. You take it to God. And then what I want you to do is I want you to cock your hand right back and swing it and smack them right in the butt and say, get back to work. Now, the, in, the intensity of the friendship tells you how hard to cock it back. And this only works in same-gender relationships, praise God. If you're married, you can cup it a little bit. That's just, but that's, for the ma- just for the, that's just for married people. But what, I, what, I, what I'm telling you is, it's both. Take it to God. Take it to God. Oh, we're praying and praying. But you are not a good friend if you let your friend's plans die in the pity party. You're not a good friend. You're not a good friend if you're only letting them just belt out one dead dream after another. No, take it to God and then cock that hand back. And I'm telling you, smack and just put a little bit of action in there. Just get back to work. Now I want to pause real quick. What do you need to get back to work to right now? What do you need to get, get back into the game with? What do you need to reevaluate that thing you said was a pause button, but it was really stop? You stopped talking about the dream because people didn't say amen. You didn't see the kind of response you thought you'd get, so you stopped working. And what I want to tell you to do is take it to God right now. Take it to God and get your butt back to work because it's not about you. If this was about the kingdom and this was about the king, whatever it was that God put on your heart, then get back to work for him. And so encourage, encourage your friend and encourage your own heart to just take another step forward. Nehemiah in response to that, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7 through 10, it says, When San- Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the, de- the repair of the walls of Jerusalem was progressing, and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. 
So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. And so now they're saying they're going to come against the work physically. And so they have a guard that's there. But in Judah, the people start talking. And it was said, the strength of the laborer fails since there's so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. You see, the problem that Nehemiah had was that he wasn't working with a clean slate. The wall that he wanted to construct was in the midst of a wall that was already in rubble. And the people are saying, there's too much rubble here. As we build this 40-foot wall that's nine feet thick and it's 2.7 miles in circumference, we're getting tired because we not only have to build the wall, we've got to remove the old wall. And how many of us have been committed to a work? You were a teacher and you said, man, I want to be a different teacher than the teachers I had. So you go into the school and you're like, I'm going to be a great teacher, not realizing that the same problems your teacher dealt with in the past are still there. The old you is still in that school and they're dealing with your behind. And so the reality is the old problems are still around, even though you have a new plan. The old rubble is there. The old issues are still there. And so Nehemiah says, or the people say, it's too much. Too much rubble and too many problems. And so we now see discouragement setting in. And discouragement happens when your eyes wander off God's ability and onto your inability. I don't have enough money. I mean, how can I get this going if with, with the money that I have? I don't have enough skill. I mean, how can I be able to build this business if I'm the one that's, the one that's thinking of all the plans? I, I've never been a planner. I, I don't have enough people behind me. How can I start a church if there aren't enough people who are supporting me? And the minute your eyes wander off of God's ability you begin to let discouragement settle in and settle into your heart. And it stops the work. And this is what the people want to do. They've forgotten about the goodness of God, the greatness of God, and they want to stop doing the work. This will happen to you. This will happen in your heart. You will want to back down and you will want to quit if you're going to do something great for God. When we first started the church, I remember there was a a church that said that they were going to support us $30,000 a year. And so because we were moving from a five-bedroom house into 600 square feet, and we were now paying all this money, we felt all this pressure, and it was so good to know there was going to be this church, $30,000 a year. This like, oh my gosh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. And then they sent me an email saying, we've decided, and we've already moved up here, we've decided this year we're not going to do $30,000 a year. We decided to send you letters of encouragement, which I don't know if you know this, but you can't eat encouragement, praise God. So... <laughs> Here we are saying, I'm, I appreciate the encouragement, but that's money not in my pocket. 
And immediately, the first thing I started doing was saying, I'm not a support raiser. I, I can't raise money. Who was I to think this young black boy is going to come up to New York City, this big city, and, and where my rent is so high and my, I'm, I'm, I have no money. And my, my, I asked my parents, my parents aren't supporting me. And I started thinking so much about what I didn't have. That's all I could do was think about what I didn't have. And I, I, I saw, I just saw failure everywhere. And I was getting ready to open up the door and tell Natasha, we lost the money and I don't know what we're going to do. And it was raining out actually that day, so it was even worse just hearing that. And as I, I walked to the door, yeah, I was like, um, I walked to the door and I remember I was getting ready to open up the door and I was getting ready to just say that, like, you know, it's, it's all bad, Tarsh. No money and we have no people and there's no way we can get this church going. And I remember I made a decision. I am going to keep going. I don't have the money I don't have the people. And I don't know if you know this, but starting a church in New York City with no people and no money is a bit daunting. <laughs> I don't have the money. I don't have the people. But God, I have you. And you're enough. You're enough. You're enough. So I'm going to keep going because you're enough. And I don't have the resources, but you are the source. And I'm not a good, I, I can't make plans, but you're sovereign. And I'm not that smart, but you have all power and all wisdom. So I'm not going to do this for my identity anymore. I'm going to do this for your glory. And if you have called me to failure, I'm still going to go. If this doesn't work out, I'm still going to go. If they laugh at me, I'm still going to go. If we end up with three people forever, I'm still going to worship you. And I decided not to be a great planner, not to be a great support raiser. I decided to be a worshiper. And I made it my job every day to have a quiet time. And I said, I'm just going to sit before God every day and worship. And if my plans fail, I, I'm going to see that you're still good. And what ended up happening was God began to build momentum in my heart. And I started trusting him, trusting him, trusting him, trusting him. And then Two people came to Bible study. <laughs> and three, and four, and five. And I'm glad he taught me how to worship. I'm glad he taught me how to worship. Because if you can't worship him in failure, you can't worship him in success. Yes. I'm glad he taught me how to worship. Can he remove your plan and you, he still be good? Can he take away your dream of success and still be good? 
Is he still worth it? Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 4 and 14, his response to this moment is brilliant. He says, after I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight your countrymen, fight for your countrymen, your sons and your daughters, your wives and homes. And here we have great wisdom, great wisdom. The first thing you notice, he says, after I made an inspection. <laughs> so the first thing that Nehemiah does is he's hearing about the rubble and so he says, well, let me go inspect the rubble myself so that I can make the adjustments that are necessary. The reason why many of our plans fail is because we adjust to people's complaints, but we don't adjust to our own investigation. He inspected it for himself. I, if I had a dollar for every time someone has come to me and said, Pastor, people saying this, I'm like, okay, who said it? Well, people, well, then if you don't tell me who, then I don't care. Because if they don't have the courage to identify themselves, it wasn't that deep to them. See, I want to know who said it. I want to know why they said it. Yeah. Not because I'm trying to clap at them. <laughs> I want to know the problem. For real, though. I want to look at it for myself. I want to examine it myself. We don't have something? Tell me. T tell me exactly what's going on. But I can't tell you how many times early on in ministry I would hear a complaint and I would let my mind run wild because I heard a criticism or a complaint and I didn't investigate to the depth of it. Because oftentimes Satan, in his mysterious wisdom, he will take a little bit of truth and add a whole lot of lie and have you believing, having a lie in your belief system. Think There's like two people that said it and you think everybody said it. It's so deep. I mean, literally, there have been times when I've heard a complaint, and I'm walking in like, yo, they all hate me. Everybody's bugging up in this church. Everybody hates me. And it really is two people, and it's two people who, have, who always have problems. That makes a difference. So I encourage you, don't adjust to criticism. Adjust to your investigation. Find out specific details. Spot, find out who, what, when, exactly what was happening so that you don't move back and forth every time someone has a problem. If you can't deal with criticism, you can't lead. You want to do something great? If everyone agreeing with you means it's great, it won't be great. If it's going to be great, if it's going to be powerful, you will have to push back the darkness and it means you will face resistance. But I, I encourage you, peer in. Look for the detail. Because as you look with detail, you'll have a detailed response and be more effective. So he investigates it. But then the second thing it says is, remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord. Remember what God did when they came to the Red Sea? He parted it. Remember what he did with Naaman? Remember he was a leper? Remember what he did? He healed him. 
Remember how he turned water into wine? Remember that? Remember everything that God has done? And he says the awe-inspiring God, meaning that he captures your attention and he, he won't let you go. Do you remember those things? And he's in front of the people while they're discouraged, and he's reminding them of the goodness of God. I just want to encourage you. I tell y'all all the time, please read your Bible. Please spend time with God. Please read your Bible. Please spend time with God. And you're like, I'm so discouraged. It's like you're not remembering what God has done. It's like, well, I forget. I'm like, you can't remember somebody you don't read about, praise God. you got to spend time in the text. It's, it's stories of his goodness. And he's, and he's standing up in front of them saying, remember Remember everything the Lord Jesus has done in the scriptures, in the Old and New Testament. But if you don't remember any of that, remember what he did for you. Remember your own story. You know, I remember that in the beginning of the church, I remember people got sick and tired of me talking about what I bounced in clubs and how I would tell my story again and again, but I'm not over my story. I actually, some days, I write down my story. Literally, some days, I'll just be in the midst of things, and I'll remember the days when I was working at a turkey plant as a security guard. <laughs> and, I would, and I remember, I remember, I remember, I remember the first time I read the book of 1 John. I didn't know there was a 1 John. I was like, why, does, uh, why is, is this the appendix? Praise God. Why is this in the back? Why is there a first John? Oh, is this like, oh, maybe there's other. And I remember reading about love for the first time. And I remember about loving your brother. And sometimes when I get discouraged, I sit back and I just write down my story. I write down that, about, that, about that booth I was in. I write out how my wife and I met. I write it down. Because I remember the awe-inspiring God. But I remember the days he had me in awe when he captured my heart and my attention. And thirdly, he says, fight. Fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. And he says, fight for someone else. Fight so that this would be the last generation that has to be wallless as a community. It's oftentimes when you have experienced great pain that you make a decision to do something great for someone else, and that is the DNA of a servant, when you're doing something for the benefit of others. He says, fight for your families. Some of you want to be different. You want to have a great marriage. Keep going so that you can break all the generational curses from the past where there's been divorce and separation and problems. So many people say, I don't want to be like my parents. You break that chain in your family. You be different. You be different. But fight for someone beyond yourself, beyond your own generation. And he says, be a servant. Fight for others. And so Nehemiah inspected the wall for himself. He told them to remember the Lord. And he says, fight for your countrymen. Now, I've sat down with many a man and a woman who live in the defeat of the past. 
and not able to accomplish things. And they're constantly discouraged. And I know that this is even deeper in our culture because the level of a comparison in this generation is more than I've ever seen. Because people who are successful don't feel successful because they spend too much time comparing themselves. So they never feel like they're getting ahead. There is a chance that the dream you have doesn't pop off. It may not be successful. In 1 John 4.4, 4, that tells us a story. 1 John 4.4 4 says, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now, my King James people know that this is greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Praise God. But, but this text, you know what it says? You've conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. He says, you've already won. And then he says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He says, you've already won. Um, basketball season's here. All right. College basketball is here. And at the end of the college basketball season, they're going to do this thing called the round of 64, and where they look at each team and they rank them. And they'll put one seeds versus 16th seeds. And they'll have the number one seed be UNC or Kentucky or Kansas. And they'll have the 16th seed be like DeVry or like, you know what I'm saying? Be like little mother Mary of Tabernacle University. Valparaiso. Schools you never heard of. And they're the 16th seed. And they had won their little championship, and now they're in the round of 64. And every now and then, you tune in, and the 16th seed is playing the number one seed, and it's halftime. And the 16th seed is only down by five. And you go into the locker room of the number one seed, and they tight. They're like, oh, snap. You see, we should already have the title. We're entitled, see? I should, we should win. We're supposed to win. Yeah, we, we're supposed to win. Yeah, we've already got the title. But then you've got the 16th seed. And you know what they're saying? We're just glad to be here. We don't deserve to beat the number one seed. We're little old, we're this little old school. We shouldn't even be in this game. And they actually celebrate the fact that they're in the tournament. Winning, winning the tournament would be great, but being in the tournament is enough. And when you have been saved by grace, by the grace of God, and the mere fact that God chose you, you, you with all your past, you with all your inconsistency, you, you with all those things that you've said and you didn't do. You, he chose you for his glory. 
We should be glad just to be in the game. <laughs> we should be glad that God, the God of heaven and earth, wants us to tell his story to the world. God wants us to write about him, to speak about him, to sing about him, to organize around him. God wants to use us. I'm just glad you signed me up. I'm just glad to be in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm just glad you know my name. I'm glad to be in the game. And if I do win in the end, if I do get that big platform, if I do get my name recognized, it's more than enough. But I'm happy just to be in the game because I've been saved by grace. Church, you will face great opposition. And the greater the plan, the greater the opposition. But do you know you've already won? And when you've already won, you operate in freedom. Freedom. Holy Spirit, we just, I speak freedom over the life of this church. Freedom. Freedom to win and freedom to lose. Freedom to be able to face the criticism of the people. Freedom to be able to keep working. Freedom to keep pushing. Oh, that we would be people who are free. God, I pray against all forms of being in an identity crisis. God, I pray that we would not define ourselves by our work. I pray that we would not need to win, that we would not need to have people know our name, but we want to because we want to make you famous. We want to bring your glory about in this world. And so we ask you, God, we ask you, would you use our little plans? Would you use our dreams? Would you use our stories? And would you change our world? And use us, pick us. And we ask, God, that in the end, when people say, how, how did you how did you have success? We'll say, I was successful before I even started. Because I know the all-powerful God. My relationship with God and my identity in Christ makes me successful. It's not a resume. It's not a job. It's not people filling a room. Success was on the cross and success is in my heart because Jesus is my success. Let you be enough, God, in Jesus' name.